Hi, I'm Tash McGill. Welcome to this quite personal episode of The Transformationist Season 3. It's a big, big world with some big, big problems. And all the personal transformation in the world isn't going to help if we can't stop the world from burning. So today's interview with Dr. Jeff Crabtree takes a dive into his PhD research into workplace and sexual harassment, specifically in the music industry. It's a research project that was published right as a groundswell of protest was emerging amidst a cacophony of stories. It's these kind of catalytic moments that drive change forward. And so I wanted to talk to Jeff about what he learned, what we can learn, and what actually happens in the slow, laborious process of changing systemic problems. But first I wanted to tell you a story. I like to think of myself as being relatively strong and confident. Over the years I have removed unwanted hands and affections in bars or even at work conferences. I've turned down blatant and surprising propositions from the most unexpected of sources. I have been bitterly disappointed in people and the choices that they've made. I've also participated in enthusiastic ongoing mutual consent, and I'm a huge fan of it. But I'm still caught by surprise, most often by the audacity, the entitlement and the privilege with which people have acted towards me. The most recent example of sexual pressure came, became an act of harassment pretty quickly. In December 2019, I was on a famil trip with a group of 15 or so people, some of whom I knew really well, and that became an incredible safety net. On the last night, the phone rang in my hotel room, and a deep, intimidating voice on the other end of the phone said, Can you believe that they gave me your room number just like that? It was a veiled threat as he intimated that he knew where to find me in the hotel. And his tone became suggestive and pressing. He asked again for me to invite him to my room, despite having said no repeatedly over the last day. Except now my heart was racing because he knew where I was. And bold enough to make that call after multiple rejections means he was bold enough to turn up and knock at my door. It means it's worked for him before. He's gotten away with it before. And I knew that the scales were tipped. He was insistent effortlessly escalating his attempts to get inside my room. I told him no again. I hung up the phone, unplugged it, moved the chair from the desk to under the door handle just in case. I had seen it coming for a couple of days, but I hadn't guessed how far he would go. His presence and his behaviour had been escalating for days and I was actively managing him. If you know, you know. It's that unshakable feeling of when all of a sudden you're conscious of making sure someone else is sitting between you at lunch. You keep your distance, you avoid being alone with them and you second guess and check every action or word that you say. And that night I slept restlessly, my heart occasionally pounding. I was certain that I could hear him at the door. And then I scolded myself for being paranoid. Look, honestly, I could fill you in with even more detail about that incident um, and what scared me. In fact, I could fill you in on every detail, every utterance, every unwelcome and heartbreaking, unwanted piece of sexual attention that I've ever received, you know, from the time I was 16 <laughs> uh, through. Because in my experience, it never leaves you. Right, There's little bricks of distrust formed by people's words and actions. You keep a running account. You check the behavior so that you know how to recognize it when you see it again. You put a little black mark against someone's name knowing that they're not entirely trustworthy and you think about forever how you will hold them at a distance because of things that they have said or tried to do with me or with others. And there are some people that I will never work with or engage with because you remember and you keep score. You warn your friends, you keep the list, you work hard to keep yourself and others safe and sometimes you do wonder if you should just lift the lid and do the tell-all. 
But you keep hoping in second chances and better, happier endings. You keep hoping for people to find change and transformation and you give people the opportunity to do that. And I'll talk about that a little bit. It's why I was so frustrated um, this week and actually came back to re-record this intro um, because I was so mad to see uh, the news reveal yet another celebrity Christian pastor has been investigated for incidents of sexual harassment. And the press release called it inappropriate behaviour. It was a press release that was made by the board of the church in response to a journalist actually uncovering what was really going on. And when people say inappropriate behaviour, that's really just one more way that a society that's riddled with patriarchy and power looks to protect those at the top of the chain. And I scoured the press release regarding Hillsong Church for an apology or an acknowledgement from the accused. The church apologised, but not the person under investigation. In fact, despite the church acknowledging there was wrongdoing, they also blamed the behaviour on medication and alcohol. Well, here's a tip. I'm drinking a glass of wine right now, and I'm yet to harass anyone inappropriately. Power, power, power. One of the instances described in that press release is exactly what happened to me in December 2019. Someone with high social standing on the basis of their spiritual and moral code, we call it spiritual authority, but it's the same stuff that gets attributed to the boss at the top of the food chain. It's the food chain. It's the same stuff that Harvey Weinstein played in. It's the same stuff that Kevin Spacey took power on. It's the same stuff that we play in all the time. And this time it was a leader of a megachurch, ended up going to a woman's hotel room and finding his way inside. My skin crawls. People will do whatever they think they can get away with. And that makes trust a precious commodity, easy to lose and really hard to win. I personally don't want to be untrusting. I want to believe and assume the good intentions intentions of everyone. But the evidence continues to stack up. And so we have to do something about that. We have to do something about that because the cost is too great to ourselves, to our friends, to our sisters, to our children, and not just to women. But actually, this is a systemic problem that happens wherever there is a power imbalance. It's not just women who suffer. Men can suffer equally, and it's not just a binary gender issue either, right? The intimidation, the bullying, what happens to people who are trans is just heartbreaking. So we have to do something about it. And that's why in this season, talking about big social change and how to make it happen is really important. For the best part of three months after what happened to me the last time, I was shaken to my core and I'm not afraid to say that. I'm a strong, confident woman, right? But I was shaken by the fact that someone thought they could pressure me into it. I was shaken by the fact that for the first time in a long time, I was physically intimidated by a large, tall man that could have overpowered me. I was reliving every other moment where people of supposed moral code had approached, pressured or propositioned me. I was living in visceral anger and disappointment, as well as managing my own justice. For three months, it was anxiety and fear and concern over what it said about me that someone thought they could do that to me. Paranoia that somehow I had invited it in and then shame, the layers of shame, that I let it get that far, that I put myself at risk, that the only sexual attention that I had attracted in a year was unwanted. (laughs) A million narratives and all the shame at the centre. My friends rallied, but the days were dark and long and it became all-consuming. And yet I was one of the lucky ones because I had been through it before and so this time I was at least able to find my way out of the hideous 36 hours left of that trip. I was able to find a way to try and protect other women from this predator I'd discovered. How did that happen? Well I'll tell you soon but for now let's talk about the problem and what needs to change. 
Let's talk about where it starts. Jeff has been a guest on every season of The Transformationist so far, but in the background, the entire time he has been working on this research project and PhD, I asked him to tell us the story of where it started and where it's taken him. So the research um, started life as a, an investigation of one thing um, that finished up becoming something else, and that uh, is normal. Uh, as I as I understand it now, in the process of research, if you knew what you were going to find, then there's not a lot of point in doing the research. That's what they all they will say to you, you know. But um, but this uh, one of my uh, one of my academics who was like supervising me for a short period of time was from Sweden, and it's this old Swedish guy basically going, "So what are you going to find?" And I said, "Oh, I'm going to find this, this." And he said, "No, you have no idea what you're going to find." Um, and he was largely right. You, you just have to go in with an open mind. And so it began life as uh, an investigation of workplace harassment, not sexual harassment, workplace harassment, which is, that you know, I believe, you know, I could get to this later on, but I believe those two things are really closely tied together in any case. But um, so bullying, what we traditionally think of as bullying. Uh, so that it's, that's where it sort of started life. At, and, and it was in October 2016 that I was applying and so the Me Too movement didn't really arise until 2017, but it was um, – and then everybody was texting me and going, oh, wow, how good is that, you know, to do with your research? And I'm going, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. We'll find out. But um, you can't – that sort of timing is something that you can't um, – you can't orchestrate that. Mm. Um, and, in fact, it, it, at, one, at one point it sort of worked against me because there were a whole bunch of – people that I was trying to contact to be participants in the research and the Me Too thing had exploded and they just said, look, you're just getting on the bandwagon. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a man jumping on the bandwagon. And it was diff difficult to explain that. Actually, I'd been working on it for a year before – I'd been working on it for a year before the Me Too thing became prominent because the, the journey of a re – a research is one journey, but the journey of a doctorate involves – playing a, a, a playing the academic game and the first thing they get you to do is to write a literature review which is it means that you have to spend a, nearly I spent close to eight or nine months with my head buried inside academic theory and with my head buried inside and you know trying to work out the academic an, an academic understanding of the music industry and changes that have taken place so I've been working on this thing for a year and then me to explode so I'm not like in my mind I'm not jumping on the bandwagon it just happened things happen to coincide. Um, so I, um, so the story of the research is that I was um, actually got a scholarship from the Australian government to do this work and uh, um, I interviewed 33 participants, um, some of them face-to-face, -face, some of them, you know, via the, what came before Zoom, which was Skype, you know, some of them just by phone. Um, uh, and 80% of those participants were women and what they wanted to report to me, in spite of the fact that I would, it was overtly recru recruiting people for a study on workplace harassment, what they wanted to report to me was sexual harassment. And, uh, and so then that's what the research became. So it actually finished up being about workplace and, and sexual harassment. There's, there are certainly lots of information, there's lots of um, lots of bullying stories that are not sexually, not are not sexual harassment. Although well, there is a, I'm going to say this is, a, this is a complicated story, you know, because workplace harassment is one field of academic inquiry. Sexual harassment is another. 
but they both have their place in power. They're, they're, um, they both arise from an imbalance of power, which is me rushing, you know, running to the, rushing to the finish line. Massive imbalances of power allow bullying to take place. Mm. And I, thought, I suppose you could say it's because bastards are everywhere. I mean, but even, but even people who aren't necessarily bastards bully or harass when the opportunity arises. So there, there's, there's a sort of an opportunism that also I think takes place. But bullying, so bullying, um, you know, which is intimidation, fear, gossiping, uh, you know, socially excluding people, sidelining people, that, it, that, that also can have a gendered basis. So, there's, so given that sexual harassment is gendered in nature, then workplace harassment is also gendered in nature and this is where they tend to cross over and the boundaries between them are, are, are blurry. Mm. I think they emerge from the same kind of cause, causes. They emerge from, as I said just before, power imbalance and they, and they emerge from um, a worldview. You know, they emerge from a problematic worldview. Um, so I think I see them as linked even though a lot of people don't, you know. So... Mm. so um, so that's the journey. And then I interview, I had 150, somewhere around 150 people do the interview, and which is not, so this isn't a large study when it comes to looking at a population like the music industry, but it's a large study for a PhD. So PhDs are normally would have a, you know, like 100 participants on a survey would be considered acceptable. Um, and so I went well beyond that. Um, but even so, it's very difficult to establish the actual size of the music industry. Mm. Num- the, the numbers that you so, – so, you know, one of the ways that you establish how, how big is the actual study is what is the size of the sample compared to the size of the actual population. And nobody really knows how big the actual music industry is. The numbers are so rubbery. And who, which parts of the industry do you, do you, are you referring to? We're referring to songwriters, you know, like there's 250,000 people, for example, on the books of APRA AMCOS. Mm-hmm. That's 250,000 members. So does that mean the music industry is 250,000 people? Or is the music industry like the group of people who work for the major record labels, then the smaller independent labels plus their artists? Is that the music industry? And you know, But then that excludes all the people who play and do the gigs. And is the music industry just the musicians or, or is it the people who work in PR, people who book the rooms? Is it the crew? And, you know, and so I, let, I cast the net widely to include uh, crew, tech people, um, industry executives, you know, PR, admin, publishing, the like, and as, as well as musicians, performers, songwriters, and so, you know, producers. So that you've got uh, – so that's the story. The story is it took me around about three years to – it took me a year to get ready to launch the study. The study ran for about two years in which I was just doing interviews and collecting data and – you get to a certain point and you realize that the pattern, there are patterns emerging. And so the ta- your task as a researcher is to analyze the data, right? And so this is what you see. You get it's, – it's, it's funny, you know, you get beyond – I think I got beyond about the 23rd or 24th interview participant and then <clears throat> the stories start to get the same. Not not identical stories, but the but you see these patterns emerging, and then of course that's when you realise you've got something to report. What were those things that you started to see emerging? What were the first patterns that you began to spot? 
Uh, I've already mentioned two of them. One of them is that there is an, wherever there is an imbalance of power, there is harassment. Um, there's sexual harassment and then workplace harassment. So that, that's the first one. <clears throat> the second one is that women in the music industry experience, their experience of being in the music industry is utterly unlike the experience of men being in the music industry. Hmm. So being a man in the music industry, you, you miss all of this. You may see it out of the corner of your eye, really. Um, in fact, one, I had an interview with one male musician who had been doing a lot of live gigs and uh, there was one, he had one instance where he, and, and he but he mostly works, works with other men, and, you know, in small live venues. So, you know, pubs, clubs and bars, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and uh, he had, on one occasion, he told this story about he had some one female colleague or two female colleagues with him. And somewhere in the middle of the show, somebody yells out from the back, show us your tits. And he said that was, he said, like, he had this sudden realisation that there was this whole other experience. And he he reflected on that in, because he felt like he didn't he, he didn't know what to do as experienced as he was didn't know what to do in order to protect his colleagues mm. his female colleagues because it was out of his normal experience of the, but he knew what to do to protect himself you know but but this was a whole other thing and the, and then of course the way he deflected it was by saying so you want to see my tits do you mate he but he deflected it by with comedy and then of course the whole room breaks down and laughs but at the same time he still that still etched into his memory that moment where he where he had this realization that women experience the music industry utterly different from men and i think that difference is it's a horrifying difference and and so i was uh, it was a privilege really for me to have people tell me their stories. So power imbalance, it's in absolutely and utterly gendered. It's systematic. That is, there are uh, the systems that operate inside the music industry serve to further um, powerful men's ability to uh, um, ab conduct abusive behaviour against women. The... Um, um, and then the sexual harassment forms a, uh, there's a spectrum based on, um, and actually that spectrum or a continuum, if you like, is based on the work of another academic, not my, actually basically reading around trying to find a way of understanding this. So there's this incredibly experienced um, female academic, Louise Fitzgerald, her name is, um, had developed this kind of a taxonomy for understanding sexual harassment. And so she talked about how it starts in gender discrimination and then it becomes unwanted sexual um, approaches. This is how she defined it. Um, gender discrimination, unwanted sexual approaches, and then sexual coercion. And sexual coercion can lead right up to, I guess, sexual assault. So, But, I, but what I, I found, what I found, essentially supported Fitzgerald's taxonomy, which is, Women are experiencing discriminatory uh, remarks, snide comments that are that are are, are put down. Um, they undermine a woman's uh, social standing, social status. They undermine the authenticity of her, her presence. They undermine her being there as a an equal human. Um, 
and then that also um, that also includes kind of an objectification. So there are there's an enormous amount of ways in which women are objectified by men in the music industry. I mean, there are enormous ways in which the work of women, female artists, forces them into a kind of objectification. Um, and I had uh, conversations with uh, with female artists who described the cost to them personally of being objectified and the mm. feeling objectified feeling that they had to conform to some kind of sexual ideal, um, uh, feeling um, of being, in some cases, being pressured into wearing certain kinds of clothing, for example, at gigs, changing their appearance completely. So so these are sort of um, very, very real social pressures that are, women are experiencing. And then, of course, then it comes to, um, and then it, it comes to things like um, you know the un- the classic unwanted sexual a- approach, which is you know you're standing backstage behind the gig and somebody comes up and slaps you on the bum, or 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 you're at a, you're at an after party and somebody you know wants tries to kiss you. Or um, there's a phenomenon that was described by an, a number of women in the music industry, which they call the hand on the lower back. And when, when you talk about it with them, and then I, I, two or three two or three uh, um, participants mention it, and so then when other participants were talking about about the phenomenon of what happens at industry parties and industry events. They would, I would say, so I've heard other people talk about a thing called the hand on the lower back, and they would laugh and they go, "That's exactly mm-hmm. it." Mm-hmm. Which is, you're standing amongst a group of friends, and some senior male executive comes over, and in the guise of greeting you, <clears throat> puts his hand on your lower back, slides it down to a, to a part of your anatomy that the law considers to be a sexual approach, but because it starts on the lower back and then, and then as one participant described it, that hand is there for just a little bit longer than it needs to be. Mm. And, you know, you're touching, uh, you're touching a woman's hips or you're touching her buttocks or, or whatever, and, but, but to an, an external observer, it, it can look innocent. Yeah. That- but anybody, anybody looking at that goes, oh, that's two old friends. But you know the woman knows that she's being harassed, and it's um, and it's a classic play of older older white me- men. Frankly, mm-hmm. um, I'm speaking as an old white man, but um, but older white men, frankly, on young women in the music industry, at those kind of and there are a lot of those events. There's award nights, there's after parties because the party partying and the music industry come together. You know, there's <clears throat> there's the after gig celebration. A lot of the indust- a lot of the um, the high end of the music industry happens in a kind of a party space, and mm. I mean, even if you're working in the small live venues, you know, you've got to remember that you're there. Um, musicians are there, and I've done this. And musicians are there working; it's their work environment. But for everybody else, it's a party. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that makes it problematic for women. So then, and so I'm just going to say, and then from there, that unwanted sexual approach, which has multiple takes multiple <laughs> forms, from there. It goes to sexual coercion, which is unless you sleep with me, you're not getting this record deal. Unless you sleep with me, I'm not getting you in the room with other publishers. Um, unless you strip off naked and get into this rooftop pool, we're not going to keep – we've got a record contract with you, but we're not going to pursue it, that kind of thing. Mm. And a lot of it is unspoken. Um, a lot of the harassment is um, understood, nonverbal, and therefore um, – even before you get to any physical touching, 
there's a sort of a plausible deniability where somebody can say, oh, no, whoa, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that. Oh, that's not, you mm. misinterpreted it. But all the women know. All the women know. It's strange. All the women know and all the men d- deny that it's happened, right? And uh, then we get, and then because, sorry, I'm just going to, I know I'm interrupting you, but no, I just no. want to, I know I hate that, but I'm, but I, I just wanted to get the end of that spectrum, obviously, beyond sexual coercion is actual sexual assault. And so I've had participants who reported sexual assault, physical assault, rape. That's it. I, I wanted to get, you were asking me what emerged, and I just wanted to get all of that out. No, perfect, perfect. Let me step back to a slightly helicopter view. Often when this kind of research is done, it's done within a niche or or a, um, a specificity where it might have an impact in a narrow field of reference. Um, or sometimes this kind of research or inquiry is done because somebody uh, somebody with authority has recognised there might be a problem and therefore says we need to go and study what's happening here, right? That's the non-academic kind of inquiry that happens. Your work and this PhD, from my perspective, is really interesting because it had, when it was published, it had an immediate public high-profile impact. Um and yeah. I would love for you to tell the story of what's happened in the, you know, in the in the in the intervening months from when it was published, because people were suspended, they were stood down, they were walked out of the building. Um, yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, t- tell us about it. Tell us about that. Um, tell us about that impact. Yeah. Well, I will. Um, there are two parallel things that were happening last year. Um, one of them was my research. Most of them are really maybe three parallel things, but 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 two broad things. One of them was my research. The other thing that was happening in parable in, in parallel was a Instagram site called Beneath the Glass Ceiling. Mm-hmm. Now Beneath the Glass Ceiling is now sort of branched out. There's a New Zealand version, but the initial one was in Australia. And Beneath the Glass Ceiling was a uh, 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 I don't know how many people are involved. I'm assuming they're women. They may not be. I actually don't know the names or the identities of the people involved, and I don't want to because I don't want to ever be called into a courtroom and asked to point them out, you know, if that makes sense. I prefer mm-hmm. to I prefer to protect their identities. Um, so a, a group of women who are fearless without, I mean, fearless and brave and courageous deployed social media anonymously to uh, even up the power imbalance. And so this had a particular impact. This has this was able to have a particular impact in the music industry because the industry, um, so firstly, the music industry is not one industry. It's actually three. There's the recorded music industry. Then there's the live music industry. Then there's the music publishing industry. And so you've got to, they sort of operate together and they kind of join hands somewhat um, and people are working obviously in, in both, you know. So if you're a big-time artist, a big-name artist, then you're obviously touring and working in the music industry. And if you're, So you're working in live as well as recorded because you're releasing recorded product and obviously then you, your songs. So let's pick Dave Dobbin, for example, because I understand he's a really good guy and so there's, there's been no... Uh, I've, I've not, I'm not in receipt of any accusations against Dave, Dave Dobbin. So we've never met, I've never met Dave Dobbin. So it's all, you know, 
Dave Dobbin does live performance. His live shows are legendary. He writes his own songs, which means he has music publishing, which means those songs get picked up, put in movies and on ads. That's music publishing. Mm-hmm. Live gigs are obviously the live industry, but also he records and makes – he has a record label and he's signed to a record label, or he was. And so what that that's the recorded music industry. And so when, when we talk about the music industry, we're actually talking about three industries all at once, right? So the, the recorded music industry in particular is really tightly networked. It's small. The number of people actually work in it are very small. The number of artists who are signed is small. The number of people who work in these major labels is small. So everybody knows everybody, which means that if you're misbehaving, your story gets told amongst the colleagues of the people you misbehaved towards. Mm. So what happens is beneath the glass ceiling starts up and welcomes anonymous stories from women in the music industry. So women in the music industry connect through them. I don't know how they even do it. <clears throat> apparently, <clears throat> apparently they have some secure uh, email address that that's, that some IT genius has locked off and blocked off so nobody, they can't be identified from it and it's in a, I don't know, um, uh, Apparently, I don't know that for sure. I've never actually contacted them except through in the Instagram and made comments on their posts. That's mm-hmm. all. Um, women in the music industry were reporting uh, stories of misbehaviour and then what Beneath the Glass Ceiling was doing was posting them anonymously. However, because the industry is so small, everybody knew who they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a work of genius, actually. Um, it's not a work of great. It's like they like the resistance, a resistance operation in occupied Europe in World War Two. They were able to basically snipe and and point out. They were able to re- look. We're seeing it all again. You know what happens when you have an overwhelming military force trying to occupy somebody who doesn't want to be occupied? Guerrilla tactics. And so essentially, taking a leaf from that playbook. Um, beneath the glass ceiling were a resistance movement and um, they essentially sent shockwaves through the senior executives of the mu- of the recorded music industry in particular and I-, I would imagine also the live music industry because everybody knew who those stories were about because everybody knows everybody. That was happening in parallel to my research so at this, and I was watching it with interest. I'm going, well, that's really interesting because the stories that they were, they were promoting were exactly the same kind of stories that I had in my research. Not clearly not the same people, it would seem to me, but exactly the same kind of story, which only reinforces the fact that my research has got is valid. Yes, yeah. They were, they were publishing stories that I didn't have, but the stories have the same theme, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is um, so. Uh, and so what they were conducting this incredible campaign. So what finished up happening was somewhere along the pathway to my research, before it got published, a, um, a, I met at a conference a, a, an extraordinarily talented PR woman, woman in PR in, in the music industry who's had an incredible career, who shall remain nameless. She heard about my research and came to me afterwards and said, I want to make you an offer. I'm going to do your PR for pro bono and we're going to promote your research and we'll get it on, I'm going to get it on national TV because she said, I think it needs to be out there. So what you've actually got is a bunch of women who are not just willing, they're willing to do something to change 
they're willing to bring dynamic change. Mm. And it's not just one one woman, or it's not just two or three women, it's not just beneath the glass ceiling, beneath the glass ceiling for sure, then people like the, this PR person who, who pro bonoed for me, and she was fiercely intelligent and brilliant and dedicated and, um, and you know, one of the most amazing people I've ever met, actually. And um, at the same time, there was an Australian artist called Jaguar Jones. That's her name. She had already gone public about um, being... Uh, an unwanted sexual approach about sexual harassment in the music and music industry. She'd been she'd gone public about it, and it had gone. The story hadn't gone anywhere. <clears throat> and I know from information that was fed to me under the table that a number of news outlets were trying to put together a story on a, abusive and toxic behaviour in, in recorded at record labels in Sydney, <clears throat> and they'd been warned off. They'd been threatened. So the stories were lying dormant. So the, what you've got is that's the that's the environment, and so everything came together in a perfect storm. So um, Jaguar Jones was first. She'd gone to one of the um, she'd gone to one of the news outlets, and her and her story was told, but it it caused a ripple. Mm. <laughs> Beneath the glass ceiling was a groundswell that was gaining momentum. <clears throat> then at the then in May last year, the work of my PR person got the story of my research, tied it together with Jaguar Jones, and we finished up being on national, nationally broadcast on, uh, on, on, on the project, on one of our big networks here in Australia, an 11-minute story, which featured, which featured Jaguar Jones in an interview. It featured me in an interview, and it featured story, actually stories from my research, which were posted, which of course have been de-identified, so nobody knows who they are, but there was a lot of text from those people. And of course, on deep background, there were a number of other women who had mm. been abuse victims who went who came forward on deep background but were not were, were not willing to be uh, quoted. Does that make sense? So yeah. um so then there's so that that breaks on the around about I think about the eleventh of May. And then and then what happens is beneath the glass ceiling, starting to post stuff from my research, but then that builds up momentum. So then I noticed around that time, beneath the glass ceiling, we had all of these posts coming out, one after the other, something every day. Um, and it was like a, it was almost as if the dam broke. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know for sure, but I wonder whether or not women, after they saw the project story, women in the industry felt a little bit more freedom to contact beneath the glass ceiling and go, oh, I need to tell my story. Um, and so <clears throat> um, then what was actually happening inside one of the major record companies was that the CEO of that one of the major record companies was absolutely um, driven to distraction by the beneath the glass ceiling. So to the extent that I'm given to understand that a senior executive was excuse me, had either contemplated getting private investigators involved or had got private investigators involved to try and uncover the identities of these women, which is a real power play, you know, because what they're doing is changing the balance of power. Yeah. All very very well for you to have all of this power, but if somebody can can change the balance of power, then, of course, that completely changes the the environment, the the environment that everybody's working in and starts to change people's behaviour. Um, so we, um, so 
but I got interviewed by a number of podcasts and I got in, I got, um, I finished up being, you know, getting some honorable mentions in a couple of places, the Australian Financial Review. Uh, that, so the, the story of, that, of the research got a bit, you know, communicated a bit more widely. Before it got public, I had, had a meeting uh, with senior, the senior executives of APRA AMCOS, which is an Australian New Zealand company. Mm hmm. Who collect? They're in the music publishing side, and they collect royalties on behalf of music publishers and on behalf of artists. And they were wanting to do something, so I had a, a meeting which included some um, some people from the New Zealand music industry, myself, some heavy hitters from the Australian music industry, including the head of the new head of Aria, a, a woman, a fabulous person too, by the way. And I and essentially they grilled me for two hours on my on my research. And then at the end of it, they were satisfied enough to move forward to the next stage, which is they formed a, a working group to begin to um, plan out what stage is next. And that next stage is they're currently in the process of conducting a review of the music industry, which is really, I think, they're interviewing people who wanting to come forward with their story. So what I think they're doing is going, I think what we'll finish up from that is that there'll be a large pool of, inf of data that will validate what I've already found. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, uh, I'd be surprised if they find something that I haven't, that something new, but, but I just, but I do, I do think that they'll be able to add more depth and detail <coughs> to my, to, to the story. And so, so that was May and, you know, things kind of, apart from a few podcasts and a few stories and those things take about two months to play out, um, that played out in, and then just as that was starting to die down, the work of Beneath the Glass Ceiling um, bore its full fruit in a story that had been cooking. So the there were two media outlets who had been chasing the story, and I mentioned to you earlier, had been threatened. And now somewhere in the process, somewhere in between uh, the Beneath the Glass Ceiling, my research, the Jaguar Jones, the promotion, the publicity there, and about two, two months or three months later, it, it transpires that a number of senior people from a major record label in Australia then had come forward and then leaked and spoke, not leaked, uh, you know, talked to uh, The Guardian and The Sydney Morning Herald, to our two, two, two major media outlets. And that's when the story broke of um, um, concerning Dennis Handlin, who, is the, who was the, the CEO and, and head of the managing director, like managing director, but also the chairman of the board of Sony Music Australia. And then, uh, as we now know, um, he, was, he stepped down and so did, I think, um, a couple of other, you know, quite senior Sony executives, including Dennis's son. Um, and Sony, I think, is still, I don't think it's still without a senior leader has not yet been appointed and there have been the, the ripples from that, that news story. So you can see that it's like a, it was a convergence. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I want to give, I want to take the opportunity to give full credit to the people at Beneath the Glass Ceiling who I, I think are just absolutely fearless and, and adopted such an appropriate strategy to deal with the power imbalance. And they, but I also want to give credit to those um, senior staff at Sony who came forward because they put their jobs at risk. Mm -hmm. And that's been the um, – so you put your livelihood at risk. That's been the story actually for decades in the music industry. Mm -hmm. It turns out that everybody's known about it 
Mm-hmm. Everybody knows. Everybody, everybody in the industry has, no, has known that it's been going on, but they've been too afraid to speak because they know it's going to mean their careers. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what's happened is a few people have just said, you know, damn the torpedoes, straight ahead. You know, I'm going to, if my, if my career ends, so be it, but I'm going to put my foot down. And, and that, I mean, there were some brave women in New Zealand who did that, who, came, who, were public, who went public. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, obviously there was immediate impact there. So I'm, I just want to say that I think the research plays a role. Uh, it's not, I, I don't think on its own it's a game changer. I mean, I think, I mean, researchers like to think that on their own they're a game changer. I, I'm, I'm not an academic. I suppose I have to say that I am an academic now because I do. I mean, I teach. <laughs> you you unfortunately do actually have the paperwork and the certification. Yeah, I've got the paperwork. <laughs> I've got the paperwork. Yeah, their accusation of being an academic can be laid against me. I don't think of myself in that. I mean, it's not been my career pathway to come to be this, to be a, a pure researcher. But I'm here. I am now mm-hmm. talking to you about my research. But at the same time, contemplating a, a larger research project that would embrace the all of the entertainment industry and look at this look at the same problem but in a larger framework. Okay, that's interesting. Let's come back to that. I want to ask the question, though. I mean, the research is catalytic. It's catalytic. It's catalytic, right, which is that uh, the work of Beneath the Glass Ceiling is incredibly important, but it's anecdotal. So it's telling the truth, but it's telling the truth in a way that that there's not necessarily – there's not legal power behind that. So it's doing that important work of shifting the power balance. But then when you have research and data that provides some validity that people can interrogate the data, then research does become catalytic to that more broad-scale change. I'm going to pause this interview here and break it into two parts so it's a bit more digestible. But part two is up right now, and you can also hear a little bit more about what I had the opportunity to do in terms of facilitating my own experience moving forward um, from the incident that happened in 2019. Um, If you're not interested, just skip ahead five minutes at the beginning of the next episode. Here's what I want to leave you with as a transformational thought, which is uh, I want you to think about the context in which you find yourself, whether you are male, female, other. Um, I want you to think about the context in which you find yourself and think about the power imbalance. Who do you have power over? Who has power over you? And what opportunity is there for abuse of that, to create bullying, to create intimidation? Uh, It's probably a really good time to have a reckoning with yourself about whether or not you exist in an environment that allows that to go on. Who around you is being victimized? Maybe it's yourself. Um, And I want you to have a think about identifying those things and thinking about how you might take transformative action to change the dynamic, to shift the power balance, to give the voiceless a voice, to give more power to those perhaps who are underweighted in the system. Like I said at the upfront of this episode, I believe that this is one of the big, big problems that we need to solve. We need to solve workplace and sexual harassment. We need to solve systemic racism. And we absolutely need to solve climate change. But I tell you what, I think those might might be three of the four big ones. Let's throw food security and poverty in there as well. How do we make systemic change? We change the balance of power. I'm Tash McGill. This is The Transformationist Season 3. We're talking about stories of change, change artists, and making a difference. You can check me out on the socials at Tash McGill or thetransformationist.org.